everyone. Welcome to season two of As Per Usual, a podcast for practical patient engagement. My name is Anna Hudik, and I am your host. Today is a special episode in that it is the final one of our series examining future directions for Canadian patient engagement and research. If you'll recall, these future directions were identified through our participatory study that inspired this podcast. Be sure to check out our website, asperusual.substack.com, for more information about this study and the future directions that it identified. All right, so today we're going to be talking about the perceived lack of equity, diversity, and inclusion, or EDI for short in Canadian patient engagement and research. When we look at the current roster of patients engaging as partners in research, it can feel like the criteria to be included is retired and white. In contrast, according to our study findings, a preferred future state for patient engagement and research is one in which patient partners better reflect the sociodemographic makeup and perspectives of all Canadians, including underserved and underrepresented communities and those with different experiences and roles, like care partners, within the healthcare system. Diversity also manifests in different ways within this preferred future state. For example, patient partners are regularly being engaged across all fields of research, with researchers at all career stages, and in teams comprised of multiple patient partners that support each other in navigating the research landscape. It's quite the vision, and to help us in moving forward towards this preferred future state, in this episode of As Per Usual, we have with us two guests that will help us better understand the meaning and importance of equity, diversity, and inclusion, as well as approaches to incorporating it within our engagement practices. Ambreen, Omar, could you please introduce yourselves to our listeners? Sure. I'm Omar Khan. I'm a patient and caregiver partner in a number of contexts in healthcare, uh, but the reason I got involved because back in like 2015 2016 time frame my mom got like a really um autoimmune condition and my sister and i realized that if we hadn't done a lot of advocacy my mom would probably be dead now honestly and we had to really push back on uh, a lot of the care or lack of care that my mom was getting and and then i got really involved with uh, a lot of refugee newcomers in the toronto area and i realized that so many of them were getting really poor care and 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 a lot of them couldn't uh, or were having trouble doing that advocacy so when i was asked to get involved in some of these spaces these healthcare um for consultation engagement spaces, I was like, I need to be there to uh, maybe help change the direction of the conversation. That's great, Omar. And um, I can introduce myself. My name is Embreen Sayani, and in my professional capacity, I'm a scientist at Women's College Hospital and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto in the Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation. I have previously trained in surgical oncology. I have worked in a capacity of a medical director overseeing multiple international companies. I led my own consulting. In all of those roles, I was using research created by other people to define my way forward, and I was providing care to patients. That was always very unsatisfactory to me as a person. And along my journey, 
I've done my PhD and I've learned from wonderful people like Omar who've, you know, really shared some of these spaces with me. And I've gone from providing care to patients to partnering with patients. Because when we have a patient-centered perspective, we are prioritizing the needs and priorities of patients so that the system is actually taking care of who it's supposed to take care of. But within all those pieces, I'm I really draw from Bell Hook's concept of centering the margins. And it's the idea that if we keep designing with the focus on the already privileged, we will continue to exclude people um, who don't have access to that care. And therefore, we perpetuate inequities and replicate the status quo. But when we go from the margins and we work with people who are most excluded and suffering the most health inequities, and we prioritize their needs and the way they would like to receive care, then we just have a trickle effect where everybody receives good quality care because that is what it ultimately does. Um, that's me in, not a nutshell, a bit of a longer uh, version, but that's what brings me to this work. That's amazing. Thank you both so much for coming on to this episode. I'm so excited to pick your brains. So then why don't we start? Um, one of the many reasons that I thought you'd be ideal guests on our show today is the innovative work that you've done with the Equity Mobilizing Partnerships in Community Project, or MPACT as you call it for short. So could you please um, share with the listeners a brief overview of MPACT? For example, how it came about, what it strives to achieve, and how it engages patients? Impact, like you said, Anna, stands for Equity Mobilizing Partnerships in Community, and it is a co-designed model of patient engagement. It really stemmed from the idea that a patient partner, Elise maybe her name is, she and I were sitting and scratching our heads and thinking, well, what we currently have in place doesn't work, and we're certainly not hearing from all people. So how do we understand what's really going on? She has her perspectives, I have my perspectives, but we certainly don't represent a variety of worldviews that can inform why that's even happening. So we set off on a journey of listening and learning, and across that journey of listening and learning, Omar joined our group, and we started to scratch our heads together and really like, so what's going on in this ecosystem? What needs to be done better? So that's how it started. That was the initiation. And from there, we went about co-designing, well, if that step doesn't work, what does a better step look like? And if that step is a barrier in the institution, what can we do to change that institutional barrier? So what we are now is, is a model of what works. We've been doing this for over three years. We've been recognized by multiple awards. We are a table of predominantly patient partners, but also academics like myself. And we form a community for people from the healthcare system to come and engage with us on our terms, on our timelines, on our priorities, and the way we have kind of set about the rules of engagement. And in doing so, we've also created a process that is a model which can be replicated. So I guess, long story short, it is, yes, a community table at Women's College Hospital, but it exists because of co-designed processes, co-designed governance, co-designed outputs, and um, from that, we've developed a skeleton or a Lego box, like we say, you know, you take all those tools and maybe you can do something better in your own situation. So it's a model of how it can be done. Yeah. And and to add on that, like on the maybe the more pra practical things, like for me, so I was already sitting at some healthcare uh, tables uh, in Toronto 
And um, there, I definitely had the frustration at some of those tables. Some of those tables, they would be surrounded by like, you know, patient partners uh, and caregiver partners. And that was like really, really great. But of course, there was the question of like who could make it to those meetings. But even more than that, there was this feeling like the system people would come and talk to us uh, to check a box, right? That they had talked to some patient partners. And then when I would sometimes be invited to be on like a smaller group, like to like say like a, a task force or something that they were working towards within the system, I might be the only patient and caregiver partner at that table. And, and the language can be very technical. And I definitely had the feeling that I was there because someone had told them you need to include a patient partner. Oh, and look, Omar's available. Check. And that, uh, like the opposite, like feeling, uh, from impact, you know, impact, like, I think one thing I really want, there's so many great things about impact. But one thing I really want to highlight is we, the patient and caregiver partners are the majority in the room. And like, we, uh, really define what the process is. And those are two things that just like don't exist in most, in most, I would say, uh, uh, patient engagement. So who is it exactly that can um, access Impact? And could you give the listeners some examples of the types of services that they seek from you? It sounds like perhaps it's people within the healthcare system. Is it individual research teams as well? Or how does that work? I can get to that, but I did want to share because Omar brought up some really good points and very often we piggyback off each other. So, so we might be doing this quite a bit. And when we identified a lot of the issues that we were seeing on the ground, and, and I mentioned to you, we started with listening and learning. We also published a paper very quickly. This was during the pandemic. And it was one of the five key principles that need to be applied if we are going to improve EDI in patient engagement. And I can list the five here. Omar spoke about some of them. I spoke about some of them earlier, but just to list it for you. One, an equity-oriented outreach, which means people who are most excluded is where you spend your time and resources and human capacity to, to include. And the second piece is co-build a sustainable safe space. So the idea that there is this safe space, which Omar was alluding to, but it is sustainable so people can keep coming together and you co-build, you co-design what that space looks like so everybody's comfortable. Third piece, issues of accessibility. Um, you can't always have one person in an institution or in a hospital. What is most accessible? And what does that space of accessibility look like from the patient partner lens? Four, build capacity one relationship at a time. We cannot do this work without prioritizing relationships and centering that relationship above all else. Everything else needs to be put on hold if relationships are at stake. And that requires a trauma-informed approach. And finally was do no, uh, do no harm. And what that means is we don't label people. People come as their full selves with a complexity of lived experiences, and they should be able to talk about it if they feel like it, if they don't feel like it, and when they feel like it. These were the issues we identified while listening and learning. And then we took them into practice and co-designed this model saying, if you, if we are seeing all of these different issues, and we know that these are the pieces that need to be addressed on a clean slate, if we were to create something up from scratch, what would it look like? And that is the model of impact, which is collectively governed, non-hierarchical, majority patient partners 
flipping of the power dynamics and allowing people to come to the table to learn in a safe environment the perspectives of people with lived experience. So who comes to the table? I can I can summarize and then maybe uh, Omar, we can go back and forth or just, just feel just chime in, Omar. Um, it was co-designed at the very beginning. The idea was unless there are clear pathways to change, we don't want to engage. So there has to be a clear pathway to change. Then you bring people around the table. And we identified three pillars, which was uh, research, policy, and practice. Every group that comes to impact is usually engaged in some kind of decision-making in one of those three pillars. And we ask people to identify which pillar. Are you a research project? Are you a policy that's being considered? Are you a hospital practice and administration piece? The second part is we always require the decision maker to be there. We don't engage in conversations unless it's actually the person who's going to decide. Because why else do we want to have a dialogue unless it's the decision maker? And then we work with people in these streams to identify which part of their project is amenable to change. Because when you engage with people, yes, you have projects in these three pillars, but which part of your project really can be influenced by having a dialogue with people. So we've had, um, we've consulted for uh, and engaged with over seven hospitals in Ontario at this point, um, 11 institutions in Ontario, two pan-Canadian projects. And it's because we've built our collective expertise to do health equity assessments as a group and provide recommendations to people who come to the table on how to make their project more inclusive and equitable. Explain what trauma-informed means, and because I think within what you mentioned, that may be one area where people may be a bit unclear. The trauma-informed um, approach means that we understand, have some contextual understanding of the systems of oppression that surround us. Um, what are the social, historical, political contexts of people's lives? And what are the possible harms and discriminations that they could have experienced before we even have an interaction? So that that historical contextual understanding is super important. And when we have that, there's the humility to, to give people space and not judge and not stereotype and not be biased and to come to relationships as a full person. Uh, I think that's what it's really about, recognizing contexts coming as your full self, accepting people as their full self, and building a relationship. On a very, again, like a very practical level, uh, and I won't get into like a lot of details here, but I think one thing that Impact has done really well is, uh, yeah, is viewing people as humans, right, who have like a, a full life experience, and it's more than just their like um, an identity box that they might tick. So, you know, we've had multiple gatherings in person of our group, which I think is like really strong way to build relationships. You know, even really tragically, one of our group members passed rather suddenly. And I think everyone in the group was really wrecked by this. And it was really hard and had a meeting soon after that already planned to meet in person. And we spent a lot of time of that, like reflecting on our, our member and thinking about like what they had meant to us and and what they had meant to the world and and what they had, had like how much they had contributed and like how great a person they were. And that sort of, um, you know, that, that level of like humanity uh, was like really, really touching. 
Um, and I think so important because it, because it, it can help create, I think, as Ambry said, these sustainable spaces. Right. And, and, you know, of, of course, like people with like a lot of lived ex- challenges, like those systems of oppression contribute to maybe early passing of people um, in society. And so we, I think we have like a real recognition of that in, in our group. And, but we, I think, look at that also from a human perspective. Like, how does this, this is also just a member of our group that really matters. And we need to think about them and, and keep their like hard work, uh, in our hearts and continue it. And and so, you know, we were talking about like, and maybe how that contrasts with other spaces. And I think one thing, like I will say is like, I've been, I've made this mistake as involved in like other healthcare tables where you want to grow the membership, right? But you, and, and you want to do it in an equitable way. Uh, but then you realize you're just bringing people in uh, but you're not really understanding what is their like like they're they're more than just their identity, and, and I think the one thing that people have said to me over and over when I've been in these spaces, not the impact space, but these other spaces, is I didn't feel like I was I was really being listened to. Like I didn't feel like there was a pathway to change, and so why should I stay involved, right? And so it, that's like that's that first attempt at you're trying to be an equitable, diverse, inclusive group. But if you're not thinking about like, what are the actual impacts you can make as a group, then we're just kind of doing this identity thing where, oh yeah, okay, sure. We need, we need a youth, we need a black person, we need a Muslim, right? Like, like, and you're not thinking like, okay, but what does everyone want? Well, people get involved because they want to see something change, right? And so I think that's something that we've been very upfront about at, at Impact, which I really appreciate. Thank you for that explanation. And maybe while we're at it, could you also share with us and the listeners the um, what your understanding is of equity, diversity, and inclusion, and how perhaps that has changed over time with your work on Impact? I, I like to view it in a, in a bit of a odd acronym. I, I say diversity, inclusion, and equity, which turns out to be DIE. And that's, I mean, EDI sounds way better than DIE. Um, but, but the idea is we look at diversity first. And what is diversity? Diversity is a variety of different lived experiences, perspectives, intersectional identities. But that's diversity. After that, we need inclusion because inclusion means that with all of that diverse lived experience that people can bring, there is a space where they feel included, where they feel respected, where they're okay to just be who they are. And from that stems the problem posing and the problem solving that can lead to equitable change. So you can't really reach equity and redesign healthcare systems and services unless you first understood diversity, built inclusive spaces, and then partnered for change so that we have equitable care. That's how I view it, particularly in the context of of patient engagement. Could you maybe expand too while you're at it, if you don't mind, on the difference perhaps as you understand it between equitable and equal? Um, Because I know that's a common source of confusion for people. Sure. So I know equity is a buzzword and people throw it around a lot. But equity is really a, a word that stems from the critical social sciences. So the moment we talk about equal, we can say, well, we all have a 
a, a healthcare system that is equally available to all of us, but it's unequally available. And then the question is, well, why is it unequally available? And that's a whole context that I don't want to get into. Equal means everything is the same for everyone. Equity is an understanding that there are social and historical and political contexts to people's lives. And it isn't just that moment. And all of those historical pieces build up into who they are today. And therefore, to be able to equally access something, for example, there are unequal distribution of things and acknowledgements that need to happen. So they, they I would say they, they come from different paradigmatic worldviews even. And if you're using the word equity, you want to really do justice to the fact that this is a critical social science concept. And with that, you are invoking the idea that all people come from historical, social, and political contexts, and you cannot just pluck one person out of their entire history and assume them in, to be in that moment, just at that point of interaction without understanding everything else. What would you say that are some concrete steps that we as researchers or patient partners can take to better incorporate EDI considerations within our work? So and going back to the way the order that Ambreen put things in, I think is helpful because I still see researchers thinking, okay, well, uh, I need to involve folks because I have this checklist and I need to be like, have an equitable, like uh, diverse, like representation of the community. But I think what I've heard uh, from a lot of, a lot of like, uh, I would say justice seeking communities is that uh, we get pulled in to these conversations, uh, but we actually don't have any power in those conversations, right? Like th that uh, there's not necessarily anything that is going to change uh, in the work when, when, when we're involved. And so I've had so many people leave other healthcare, like research and engagement spaces I've been involved in who were just like, I felt like no one was listening to me. Like I came here and sure, I got my honorarium and but I spent a lot of time and didn't feel like anything was changing. And so I think what's really important is having uh, a group involved extremely early, ideally as far as close to the beginning of the project as possible, because then there is the potential to influence. Because I think a lot, a lot of the people involved, they get involved because they want things to change. So I would say that's that's like one recommendation. And now I'll pass it to Ambreen. Omar, you could do this whole podcast on your recommendations. You know, I, I've heard them. There's a long list of of things that you recommend. Um, so maybe I'll say some more and then you, you can chime in. I like to really layer it down in terms of, so I'm a researcher, I'm an academic myself. Um, it's me on a personal level. What can I do as an individual? Then what supports do I need from an institution to do this well? And then what are the structural issues really that can either hinder or, or help? Um, on a personal level, I would say first and foremost, not everybody needs to do EDI work. And I know that's a controversial statement. But if you are doing EDI work, it's social justice work, period. And we need to be okay with people doing good EDI work or people not doing EDI work. We cannot expect everyone to come in with the skills and capacity and time and resources to do this 
the service that it needs to achieve the objectives that we want. So assuming that we're in this space genuinely committed to social justice, because that is what EDR work is, then the work starts on the self. And how do I improve my own understanding of contextual issues? How do I understand my own biases? How do I fix my own language? How do I not fall into those traps of stereotypes? So the work really begins on the self. Um, and there are, it's a journey. Uh, I can't say I have all those pieces correct myself, but then that's where your village of people come in. When you are a group of people committed to doing the same work, they will call you out when you've tripped up and help you course correct. So I would say we're not striving for perfection here. It's a journey of learning and a journey of making yourself a better person the next day to show up at work, um, recovering from your mistakes and doing better. The second piece is the institutions, and we do this work in impact. Um, we have a paper written about how we co-designed, and we couldn't have been co-designed without an enabler institution and the champions of change and the early adopters who were willing to kind of <clears throat> grow out in the co-design process with us. And with that, we changed many institutional processes, right? How are people being reimbursed? Um, we never had a digital device policy for patient partners. We got the institution to change that. We, we gave away devices, something the institution had never done before. So, you know, it's about identifying those issues that are hindering the engagement, having an institution that's ready to sit there and talk with you about it, and then redesigning and rewriting those policies so that the engagement works better. Um, and then at a structural level, right? Like, I'm not sure we can always hit those pieces with patient engagement even. Um, but ultimately, I would say my biggest enabler to do this work was the fact that I, I have a six-year career development award from CIHR. And had I been able to spend the time and resources to do this work without that, I, I think not. It was the biggest enabler for me to get on this journey. So that was structural. It was funding that was flowing from the system down to me to do this work. Um, but then ultimately when we do it better, and as impact, we're doing this now, right? We're working on policy briefs because we see issues and we have enough voice and power as a group to say, well, as impact, we think this is important. This is our policy brief. So then we're challenging some of those social political discourse that we know affects the lives of all of our community members. Yeah. And to, to build on a lot of that, I think, I think one, a very practical thing for uh, researchers for engagement professionals is that if you want to do this work well, you have to be patient. It takes more time. Like just that point that Ambry made before about building relationships, right? If, if, if you're trying to just find someone to like answer one question so you can keep moving on your study, like you don't incorporate the time into that really into that process to build the relationships that, uh, can really make things uh, meaningful, uh, both for the contributions and for the uh, potential like improvement of your research, but for the the partners themselves, the patient and caregiver partners. And and if and, you know, Ambrine said right, like uh, not everyone needs to be an expert on this, and and and, that, and I think that's true. And I think you should be consulting experts, and hopefully there are experts within your institution or you know in your community who can help out. Because I think. The biggest frustration I have, and it's more than a frustration, it's like, uh, it's like so painful, is I know a number of people 
who will never do patient engagement and will never like be uh, involved in that way again because they felt harmed in the in 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 previous engagements they they had had. And these are folks I know personally who I feel like could are like such like strong voices within their community. Uh, but they felt like, oh, that healthcare engagement stuff is not for me um, because they because they didn't listen to me or they, you know, they there were microaggressions in my interactions with them. Like and, and that is uh, like terrible. Right. And so so but if so, if you can't be the expert, because it can be very hard right, to be the expert, like find the people who can support you to do this work well, uh, because you shouldn't try to like you really shouldn't try to half ass this work. It will cause harm. Uh and it's not just like, oh, my research won't be quite as good as it was. You really will harm the, the people and the communities they come from. And I'm going to bounce off Omar um, to say one of the reasons why Impact has been so phenomenally successful. Like we couldn't have imagined Omar when we first met and started to think about these things that this is where we would be. But one of the gaps in the healthcare system that impact fills is exactly this you know we have researchers they're doing these projects that are due within a year and they have a limited amount of money they have a limited amount of time where do they even get started in terms of oh now if i have a, if i want to do this from an edi lens then or a die lens um how do i go out and build those relationships in a meaningful way how do I create those spaces for dialogue? And how do I then feed that back into my project, which, oh my gosh, is due within 12 months. Like, how do I even do this? That's the gap that we fill. Impact as a table, it was co-designed not just with the patient partners, but also with people within the healthcare system. And I encourage you again to, to read the paper to understand how we found the intersecting opportunities between the community, between the healthcare system and external, you know, more strategic funders. And it's the idea that we provide, we have created enough capacity within our group to have those relationships. We have the safe space. We've skilled up to do health equity analyses and assessments and created a structured process for providing feedback so that projects can have tangible recommendations for change. Who in the healthcare system has that? We've been flooded with research projects. Like, can you please help us? Because for the budget line that we have for patient engagement, you can give us all of those perspectives without investing in the relationships, without harming communities potentially, and actually providing relevant feedback to my work so I can run away with it tomorrow and make my work better. That has actually been the reason why we're, we're fully booked next year as well. Like, it's crazy the demand. Um, and there is so much need for more people to be doing this in an appropriate way. We are um, looking to spread and scale and are having those conversations in different areas. So for the listeners out there who really want to read these papers, I know that's what I'm going to be doing right as soon as we wrap, even though I did read both already, but um, they're definitely worth reading more than once. Don't worry, we'll share um, links to these papers on our Substack page. And that was my other question. So I've heard you mention the term scalable. So is the idea also that perhaps people who are already doing this work and are interested in really furthering it themselves and increasing capacity, they apply this model in order to set up their own kind of version of impact within their research center or within their hospital? Or how do you... Um, 
how do you envision the scale-up component of NPAC? I can start, Omar, and then maybe you, you can add. So um, I think I need to step back a little bit because spread and scale was on our drawing board from day one when we were listening and learning and co-designing. I think another one of the big harms is when we go in and do participatory work, but then we create a small scale project and then the funds run out and the project is done and dusted. So we had spread and scale in here from the very beginning. And we, we grounded our work on three, three key themes. Um, one, we're using a critical social science framework to contextualize inequities. Two, we're enabling social participation from perspectives that have traditionally been left off. And three, thinking of scale up from the very beginning. So what's our scalable unit that can be applied and taken and grown in different areas it is the first piece of work that we did. And where are we now? We've got funding from CIHR to uh, develop and engaging with everyone toolkit. And within that toolkit are a variety of resources. Um, if you're an ind individual researcher, if you are a hospital administrator, if you are a patient partner, if you are a patient partner, um, you know, coordinator, then there are a variety of tools in there for you to work on yourself, tools for you to take back to your institution so that, oh, look, this is how they did it. You know, look at their contract. It's so easy and it worked for their institution. You think we could apply something similar here? What we expect is people can pick and choose based on their own setting, different resources. If you want to set up an impact on your own, you really need everything along with much structured guidance and experiential learning. So the people that are starting to scale an, an entire impact, not just the ideas and bits and pieces for more inclusivity, are working closely with us to figure out, well, what's, what's in this Lego box? What are the pieces within our own institution that can be added to this mix? And what can a new co-design model in our setting look like? Because we, we can't take what we co-designed and just impose it on others. We have tools and strategies and ways of being that we know work really well. But that was within our context. If you take it to a different context, you still take the same tools and resources and ideas and ways of being, but the things are a bit different. So the structure turns out a bit differently. But it's the whole process of coaching and experiential learning that happens. So I, I think there are those those two ideas that you can pick and choose certain parts just to become more inclusive as you go along, or you can go the whole way and develop and seed an impact in your own jurisdiction with with help and support. That's amazing. I always say, even with my own work, that ideas should be free and that we should all be supporting each other um, in our learnings and in order to apply everything that we are all learning both collectively and individually to further our field as well. So that's really nice to know that you offer individual services for projects, as well as it sounds like if somebody would be really interested and invested in genuinely doing this work within their space, that they can also reach out to your group in order to have help with that. Um, so are there any other lessons that you feel that you know, perhaps as projects keep coming along and showing up at your table, are there themes that always seem to arise or that seem to be recurring that perhaps you'd like to share with our listeners as well? Because if lots of people are thinking or needing to learn from them when they see you, then I'm sure many of us would benefit from them as well. Uh, I could start with one. Ambreen had better words for for this, I think it was something about like uh, starting from the margins. And I think one thing that's come up that's seemingly over and over and over in our group is if 
if you're designing, whether it's an intervention or your your research project, if if you're thinking about the people who are like most oppressed, uh, who are having the most struggles, and involve them in that work, oftentimes you, what you what you create coming out of that will really apply to everyone, uh, and can be better for everyone. And I think. I, I say this in kind of every space I'm in, not just NPAC, because I, I have seen, I have seen that like actually happen. And so I feel like at the NPAC space, we sometimes see digital tools that come through and people are working on digital tools, which can be great, right? Can really open up access to a lot of different uh, populations. Go, like I think I've, I've said in multiple of these consultations, thinking about your design, bringing your design to the to the folks who first might need this the most and might have the most difficulty with it um, because maybe of language issues, because of access to technology, all these issues, you're going to get a better solution in the end. Uh, guaranteed. Promise you that. Um, but it's often these, those groups are harder to access. And so a lot of people, they'd be like, I don't, I can't, I can't find these folks or like, don't put in that effort. But really, I really strongly believe that we'll do better for everyone if we work with um, the the people on the margins uh, in from from the beginning. And I'll just add a bit to Omar's point, then add one more point is, you know, what we see is people coming in with pre-designed, preconceived ideas and solutions, and then they take it like a cookie cutter and apply it to different populations. It's like, you're going to chop things off. Everybody isn't going to get it the way you designed it and from whom you designed it and with whom you designed it. Why not design with those that are most excluded and are going to benefit the most in terms of health gain? Because ultimately, we know this, that that solution is going to cross-cut and work better for everyone. The piece that I'll add here is, is about power. And power is such an entrenched issue in patient engagement. And we've observed this so much over time and as part of our co-design work too. What we say in impact is we flip the power dynamics. We we are not picking and choosing one or two patient partners to come to an institutional healthcare setting. Instead, we have designed it so that we are a table or a group of majority patient partners and healthcare system providers request a seat at our table where we are the majority. And they have been trained to come in and coached to come in and have an authentic dialogue. It's called flipping the power. And there is so much in terms of flipping that power that has enabled a safe space. It has enabled authentic dialogue. It has enabled transformative discussions because we've seen people come in and literally we watch their eyes go, oh, I never thought of that. And the number of times, Omar, that we've seen that, and and it all comes from that flipping of the power. So I'm going to plug in another paper that we've uh, written with um, about the power wheel in patient engagement, and it's in the final stages of review. So once it's ready, I'll, I'll share that link with you as well, Anna. It's a paper Omar and I and the rest of the members of Impact have worked on, and it's about how can we transform spaces and places of patient engagement so that power dynamics enable perspectives of patient partners to be shared, particularly if you have a goal of advancing health equity. Do you have any resources that you could share with people who are really interested in starting at the margins, but then they face pushback, be it from their co-researchers or from their institutions, that no, 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 you have to start first with the most generalizable segment of the population, and then, then you work outwards. I think no one person can do this on their own. 
right? This is not a one-man show. This is this is a team sport. So if someone is out there on their own as a researcher and they're trying to do this, it, it, it will just fall flat because you need to have team alignment. It will take, a, it's a marathon relay race, let's put it that way. So you need leadership involved. Now, unfortunately, leadership may be constrained by their own budget, may be constrained by their own strategy vision of the institution. What are the strategic goals? What are the strategic priorities? Um, what's the bucket of money that I have to play with? And then all of that kind of trickles down into how the projects roll out. Best bet is if the leadership is aligned and the institutional goals are aligned and there is a bucket of money. And I would say, unless all that is there, it's extremely difficult to be the person who's the face of this work, trying to fight all that and do all that. When I say I was enabled by my six-year grant from CIHR, I was empowered to do this work because I was given time. I was given money. I was given recognition. It did all those things for me from a leadership level. CIHR funded this work to happen. I don't think it could have happened with just me sitting out there on the street saying, I need to do this. It would have never worked. So you need the leadership to see the value. Once the leadership sees the value, then the teams below can work in terms of, you know, it's actually not going to take six months. It'll probably take eight because we feel we need to speak with XXX and it will take a bit of time. Then you have capacity to negotiate what you need to do the work well. And then we talk about, well, I need so many people to do this. I need the kind of money to do this. I need the time to do this. And then the person who's the face of the work is enabled. Um, I don't think it'll ever work the other way around, actually. Um, or you have a whole mobilization of researchers who are saying collectively in their collective voice, kind of hopefully not screaming at the void, but collectively saying that we need this in order to do this work better. And one of the beautiful pieces about impact has been, and we've got an, an evaluation of, of people who've come to the impact table, their interviews and surveys, and we'll be publishing that next year, is the value that they got out of engaging this way. And it, it's those kind of knowledge synthesis and knowledge products. You know, once you write it up, it's it becomes more of an evidence-based way of doing things differently that are more effective. Yeah, to, to build on what Ambreen said, and this is this is not in the context exactly of impact, but in just engage healthcare engagement in general. If leadership is not on board, then you might do actually do harm by trying to uh, to trying to involve the margins, but like you're getting so much pushback from within your organization. But that gets you. I, I've seen that happen elsewhere, and I I have seen like doing it strategically might be starting small working with such a population to achieve something and then demonstrating that to leadership. Look what we did. And and you're slowly convincing the leadership that this is like, hey, this is actually like a good idea. Look at what what's possible. Um, before you get to the, the the bigger projects. In the context I'm talking about, I feel like in one group I'm in, there is talk now of actually hiring a a, a community member with lived experience into the leadership team, like paying them to be involved in the decision-making and in the in the position of power. If a few years ago, community members and, and the engagement folks had asked for this, I'm sure the answer would have been no. But there's been a, a lot of work to demonstrate the value of doing, uh, of working 
uh, like really authentically with uh, like diverse communities uh, to like achieve like healthcare, like equitable healthcare outcomes. And because of that proven track record with small, like starting small and building bigger, you can get to the point where you can ask for the big things. So, uh, so that would be, um, that would be my suggestion. So to the researchers who might be trying to do that is, can they identify something, uh, where they can win and not harm the community and it can build from there? Thank you. That's very helpful. And that's something that we heard as well um, in season one, the importance of legitimizing patient partners and creating designated positions for them within institutions. So that also makes sense then in terms of having a set person or a position that also advocates at the decision-making level for this type of um, this research and this space as well. Before we lead into our last question, could you please share some of the impacts of impact? We have a really fancy chart for this, and I'm not going to talk about the 20 different things that we have on that. But so we we have grown from two to 19 people with with zero attrition, and as Omar said, one member of our group passed away, but. Like we hold that person in our heart and we will values are so entrenched into the way we are co-designed. They are always going to be a part of impact in the way we live and breathe as a, as a group. So the group membership, I think, when we just talk about patient engagement and then we talk about diverse patient engagement, we, we've just grown in numbers. We've received awards. We've done several publications where now as a group in a capacity where we are coming up with our own research questions. One of the projects that we're working on is is a theory of change. So when you're looking at an individual system and structural level, what are the different levels of change that need to happen to make the work that we did in impact possible in other settings? But also we've done, we've engaged with projects. So as I've mentioned earlier, we engage with projects at Women's College Hospital. We've engaged with hospitals across Ontario, institutions across Ontario, and now two pan-Canadian projects. So in terms of influencing equitable decision-making in a timely way for these multiple projects, we've been able to have our say and influence the way they take their directions. Keynote presentations, you know, all those standard academic outputs that you look for. But I think really the key one that stands out for me is our membership as a group and the fact that just growing and we find such immense comfort in coming together and growing as that group, growing our relationships and nurturing and feeding that. For me, that's the strongest number on that table. Yeah, I, I agree. Actually, I think you really can't underestimate the power of a, like a good process to change the people who are involved. Um, and so I could definitely refer to like the, uh, I'm sure the projects that we've consulted on and like the help we've given them to improve those projects. Uh, and I think, and I think one, one thing that's very cool about what we do, which I wish all projects would do was that a part of the process is a report back from the projects. What did you do with what we said to you? Because this is something you will hear over and over from patient partners everywhere. I gave my advice and who knows what happened to it, right? Okay, so that's really important. I really appreciate that. But I feel like we, as like members of Impact, have changed, like, right? You know, we feel more um, confident in like uh, our ability to talk about uh, like our concerns and like what, what we're hearing from our communities. Uh, I feel like we in other spaces to speak out uh, about uh, about what matters to us. 
I, I feel like we're better at like holding our power that we, that we have power to change. And, uh, I think that's like, so, so valuable, like, uh, to, for, for all researchers and engagement folks might be listening to us to think about how does your process with, with the community members, uh, change those community members and, and maybe help improve those communities. Uh, that's a, I think that's a serious outcome. Uh, I think I see coming from uh, impact for all all our members. That's amazing. So as we begin to wrap, is there anything that you'd like to share with our listeners that perhaps we haven't covered today, both in terms of impact or the importance of EDI in patient engagement and research? I'll give general advice, and I would put it into into three buckets. The first one is um, engage with people. People are people. You be a person, let them be a person. You know, let's not do the the identity politics and let's not um, do a disservice to who we are as whole human beings and what we can bring to an interaction. So engage with people. Uh, the second piece is engage with, with purpose. So think about it a little bit, right? Why are you there? Why are you engaging with patient partners? And then if you're engaging with an EDI lens, like, why do you really want to do this? What is your motivation for engaging diversely? And how are you going to create that inclusive space? And what change are you looking to bring? So that leads me to the third point. So engage with people, engage with purpose, and engage for change. So don't, we heard this so much when we co-designed Impact. It's like there has to be a clear pathway to change or else we're not going to do it. So engage with purpose. Which part of your work are you going to change by talking to people? And you would think it's pretty simple. And Elise and I have been coaching people for three years now before they engage with the impact group. And it's not that simple. We really need a lot of directionality in the entire body of our work and sometimes the mass of our project to understand which parts of this are most important for change and can actually be changed by the perspectives of people with lived experience so that it is better. Um, so those are the three, Anna. It is engage with people, engage for, with purpose, and engage for change. Yeah, I think those are really perfect uh, from Ambreen. The one thing I, I would add is you do have to do some thought around identifying the the gaps in in your um in in like your engagement process and, and why you want to fill them. And maybe this is engaged with purpose. What Ambreen was saying, so I, like I was saying, I think before. You know, if you're if you're going with a checklist, um, that doesn't necessarily be a bad thing. But then you should know why the things you're looking for are on that checklist, right? Like, why is it that you want a per a person from a certain community? How, uh, like, what what are you going to be? What are they going to be adding? And, and I think to think about like what do they get out of it people a lot of people just the the act of being asked and and like that's a lot of recognition right there that their their input matters but i i really want to add this one part which is you need to have some sort of recognition framework in place uh, i hear from so many community members that i work with the frustration around you know of course i i want to give back to my community i want to help out but like they said they were going to pay me or they said they were going to give this and it never happened. And, you know, as much as as much as people do this out of the goodness of their heart, they want to be recognized. Right. And that could be a small honorarium. It could be a gift card. It could just be like that there is a, some very visible recognition of their work. But I've seen in a lot of places like people don't get involved because they don't feel like their time is really being honored 
and that that's that's a shame so just like that's a really simple thing like have something set up to recognize the people who you're involving i'm going to jump in omar because there's another project that that we've worked on it it, it sits separate from impact but it was uh, an analysis of the twitter hashtag how not to do patient engagement and again that work is almost published it's in final stages of review and feedback and one of the things that we propose out of that analysis is impact is not just an outcome of good patient engagement is it is as much the process exactly everything that you're talking about omar it is the intentionality of what is the process impact on a patient partner individually and within all the steps of the work that enable their participation absolutely the project outcome is one goal but there's also the personal piece and and it's some of the things that we we put together we call it the engaging for purpose framework in patient engagement and again this is the fourth plug i've done for publication and i'm sorry but it, it, this is work we're deeply entrenched in we we study the science of patient engagement and how to do it better from a health equity lens this is what we live, breathe, and work. So happy to share those publications as they come about. It's so great to folks are publishing on all of your amazing work because it's one thing to do things and keep them for the yourself or to share them, but with only those who directly cross your path. But I think that's another important step that we all need to commit to and that we are all doing more and more is disseminating our work more broadly so that others may learn from them, even if they live across the globe or maybe they don't go to the same conferences as us or whatever. So I'm really looking forward to reading all of your publications. And as I mentioned, we'll be sharing them on our website. And if anybody's interested right now as they're listening or they log off um, to find out more about your project, something that worked for me was I just plugged into my um, browser. I just wrote E-M-P-A-C-T, Diversity Research, and it'll pop up right there. I'll also make the website available on our Substack, so don't worry about it. And uh, so with that, thanks again, Ambreen and Omar, for coming on to our podcast today. You've definitely given me and I'm sure the listeners a lot to chew on. For those of you listening, be sure to check out our website, as I mentioned, asperusual.substack.com for further information like resources from today's episodes, as well as interactive transcripts from this and previous episodes. Please also remember to subscribe to this podcast through our website or wherever it is that you download your podcast episodes. And for those of you who'd like to contact me, please shoot me an email at anna.asperusual at gmail.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. And until next time, let's keep working together to make patient engagement and research the standard or as per usual. Music